Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Anthony C. Ferrante is an American filmmaker, director, and writer, best known for being the man behind the Sharknado franchise. In addition to Sharknado 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, Anthony has directed such horror hits as Boo, Forgotten Evil, and Zombie Tidal Wave. Anthony talked a lot about Sharknado, as well as how he's able to make his sets an unbelievably fun experience that attracts his cast and crew to constantly want to work with him. This is a real art, particularly when you're working with low budget which all of the Sharknado movies were on. But Anthony has a lot to say on the topic of making your sets enjoyable. So we get some tips on that. We discuss COVID-era filmmaking and hear more about what he has in store next. All of this and so much more on today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Now, please give it up for Anthony C. Ferrante. So you're in post at the moment. What are you working on, if you're allowed to disclose it? Yeah, no, we uh, was working on a thriller that we filmed in December called Another Mother, which I'm not sure if that's going to be the final title. Um, and uh, wrapped, and we're we're kind of knee deep in post editing and all that stuff. And then uh, the uh, the quarantine happened, and so thankfully and strangely, you know, it, you, we were right at the cusp of being able to kind of finish things uh, post wise. So uh, a lot of it was the music and the ADR and, and some of that stuff. Gotcha. Um, I think like about a week before, uh, you know, the being quarantine happened here, uh, we'd finished uh, ADR on some of the lead actors. And then uh, we kind of did unorthodox stuff um, for the remaining people for various lines and stuff, which I'll say, surprisingly enough, um, we found that uh, using the iPhone's uh, microphone and keeping it away from your mouth, uh, you know, keeping it away from your body, you can actually uh, replace lines pretty well. Oh wow! <laughs> so, so we did we did a little bit of that. Um, uh, I ended up kind of um, cutting a little bit of it in just to make sure because I was I was compiling the stuff from all my actors so I can give to the sound people and. And the stuff kind of synced up okay. I was I was actually pleasantly surprised. Oh well, that's good. Um, and of course, composers can work. Yeah, composers can work from home, so that's not a problem. And the visual effects guys, you know. So, and then there's a new program called Frame IO or Frame dot IO. It's a, it's a instead of being in a screening room reviewing the final version of the film, Frame IO allows you to view the film and. As you see a, something to correct, you make a note on there, and it creates a note on the side and takes you directly to the time code. So if it's a note for sound or VFX or color, they can directly kind of go zero one two two four for whatever it is, and then all the producers and myself and the uh, set, the post team can see what what the issues are. Oh, that's great! So that was uh, that 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 actually made things. Easter. Though I, I do miss being sitting in, a, in you know the screening room listening to the film, uh, you know with full blast sound. But um, you know it's it's those little shortcuts you kind of have to kind of take into consideration for where we're at right now. And and we got through it. And I'm I'm grateful we got everything that we needed. Yeah, it seems like this time period is going to enable a lot of productions to be able to do a lot more things remotely, you know, with virtual editing rooms and, and stuff like that. And the fact that you can visually annotate a movie is, is pretty cool. 
Yeah, it was. So we did that initially. We used Frame, they, the company I work with. They used Frame.io for uh, when, when I, I was editing the film. So I would get notes from them via Frame.io. And that made it easier as opposed to getting approximately zero one two two whatever you know. Because sometimes we go, well, wait a minute, what are they talking? About? Which you know, you get right exactly where it needs to be. Um, that's the other thing that's going to be interesting too is like a lot of these new shows and uh, talk shows and stuff are doing all this stuff remotely for probably pennies, and so it's like you wonder how many shows might actually kind of veer into that direction just as a cost saving method down the road, seeing how efficient they can with, you know, reduced uh, crew. Yeah. It's going to shift a lot of industries. I mean, I think commercial real estate is going to go down substantially because a lot of companies are seeing that they can do so much remotely that they don't necessarily need to have all the overhead and all the office space and they can have remote workforces. And I mean, I think it's, it's definitely going to irrevocably change a lot of industries because we're going to see what we can do with remote workforces and stuff like that. Well, I also think, um, I think that the other thing that's going to be a great, for when this is uh, when it's safe to go back out there and make movies, is that the independents and the people first starting out, there's actually going to be more um, opportunities because there there's going to be a lot of figuring out the nuts and bolts on a studio level to ensure everything is airtight, safe, and all of that. because they have an employee upwards of two hundred, three hundred crew members on a show. But a low-budget film could be anywhere between 10 to 25 people. Mm-hmm. And you could safely isolate people. You could safely come up with stories that maybe only involve one or two actors. And I think that the real boon for entertainment at that point will be initially from these places that can kind of you know, get on the motorcycle and go as opposed to being the tank of the studio system, which needs a lot of gas to get up and running. Yeah. And I think you'll and I think you'll also see a lot of uh, clever uh, things that the independents do to kind of, you know, figure out the safety practices and the things that are necessary. I mean, we were about to start a production on a movie um, in April, and a lot of things that uh, we discussed were the two big ones um, were uh, craft service and catering, because you know, you know, craft service is like the petri dish of scurvy. You know, right. no one. <laughs> At this stage of the game, we should not even be touching that. But we started thinking, well, what if every, we find out what everybody likes? They get their little bag lunch at the beginning of the day handled by one person that puts them in a bag, and that's their craft service for the day. And you know, the uh, catering and stuff would have to be um, you know meals that are pre-prepared. Um, you know, there certainly you could do things with long lenses. You know, if you needed to do close-ups and you know, want it over the shoulder. But um, the thing that scares me, though, is that, um, you know, stuff that we're, we're getting used to about not touching people, whatever, is that we're going to go through a period of movies where it's like nobody hugs or kisses <laughs> or the intimacy and in movies will be gone. So the only thing that you really got left is uh, is is probably hardcore action and uh, get away from me. I don't like you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's strange to even watch movies where you see people eating in restaurants and people hugging and shaking hands. It's like, wait a minute, aren't we not supposed to do that? So as far as your uh, film history, Sharknado obviously has a major pop culture status. And I mean, in the context of all of the other movies that sci-fi was putting out, like Sharktopus and the the other movies of of that ilk, what do you think it was about your franchise that stood out and got such such a strong pop culture sense of status and following? Uh, We've thought about that and we've been asked that a lot. I I I think there's a a handful of things. I think... 
over the course of whatever it was, maybe 10, 15 years they were doing that Saturday night movie, uh, the odds of something breaking at some point was about to, you know, the, that, that thing was about to happen. Right. You know, I mean, they do like 250, 300 movies. One of them's going to kind of click on a, on a bigger level. But, um, but I, I think there, there was, a, there was a lot of things and a lot of factors that happen. And I, I, I can't say that one over the other, um, ensured that this happened. I think it was just like all of them combined and maybe things that we're not even thinking of. But number one, uh, you had actors that normally weren't in these type of movies. You know, mm-hmm. you had you had John Hurd, who was our first big get, then Tara Reid and Ian Ziering. And so you had a cast that wasn't overexposed with these type of movies that was like, why are they in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> and and so that was part of it. Um, the trailer that we did, um, uh, the there was a sci-fi trailer, but Asylum had done a trailer for Sharknado that was for their DVD sales. And normally they're supposed to put the trailer out after the movie airs. And I said, this trailer is too good. Can't we just convince Sci-Fi to let us put the trailer out? And they go, fine. And so uh, Sci-Fi was fine with that. And we put that out and you looked at the trailer and, and you're going, I think audiences are like, we're daring them to see how much of what we shot was only in the trailer and that was it. Right. Of course, there was like 10 times more craziness that was also on screen. Right. Which in the spirit of exploitation movies, usually the movie doesn't even fulfill what's on the poster, you know, (laughs) historically. Exactly. The other thing was that, um, Sharknado meant a lot to me, um, because, um, I was doing a lot of horror stuff for sci-fi. I was writing a lot of scripts. I'd previously done a couple of the horror films, Boo and Headless Horseman. And, um, I was pitching a lot of stuff to them as a writer. Uh, so the, you know, they always were looking at me as the horror guy and so Jacob Hare, a friend of mine who I've uh, written a few scripts with, um, we go, okay, let's come up with the two most ridiculous titles possible. So I'll send them the horror pitches, but let's come up with like stuff that's outside of the box. And and I think one of them was Lava Birds, and the other the other one was Sharknado. And when he said Sharknado, I'm going, that I love that title. And we kept talking about it, and it just made us smile. And um, I wrote a reference to. Sharknado in a script I wrote for sci-fi for Leprechaun's Revenge, which I think is called Red Clover on DVD now. And someone at the network saw that reference and they're going, we now must make this movie, even though we'd pitched it twice before because they saw it in, in paper and writing like in another script, they just went, we got it. We got to do this. Hmm. And, um, Asylum was tasked with, um, with trying to figure this out. And, um, I had just done a film there called Hansel and Gretel and they, you know, I found out that they were doing that. Well, well that's kind of our movie. And, uh, and they said, look, you know, we'll talk to sci-fi about getting you on as director. And sci-fi initially said, he's the horror guy. He doesn't know how to do action or visual effects. Oh, God. And I thought that was kind of funny. And so, but si- asylum pushed for me to do it. And when we got, when I got hired, and I said, I said this in jest, and this was always, you know, you say things silly, and I wasn't serious about it, but I was saying, well, if they didn't think I could do this, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out and make the most ridiculous movie so they can't make another movie after this uh, with, <laughs> without them comparing it to Sharknado. And that was a joke. I mean, that was no seriousness. It was just hmm. sort of like, you know. But it, invariably, that's exactly what happened. 
Yeah. And now here's the other thing, too, is I'd worked with a bunch of companies, different companies. There's a whole bunch of vendors that uh, did things for sci-fi. So, you know, uh, a whole bunch of them that, you know, you, they, that's how they filled the maw. They had six of the seven of these companies. Mm-hmm. And what I would see with some of the scripts that I wrote would be sort of this um, reluctance to get too ambitious. So hmm. it would be like well, I, one of the scripts I wrote, there was a thing on a plane and it's like, well, we can't afford a plane. So uh, why don't we turn it into a boat? We can't afford a boat. Let's turn it into a car. And then I kept waiting for them to say, let's turn it into a bicycle. <laughs> and then when they actually did the scene in the movie, the finale, it was someone in a parked car. Seriously. Oh, wow. And and so um, no, no offense to the that. It's just that also being a writer and also a filmmaker who directed movies, I knew how you could do those things. But there was a, a, a afraid that it would might, you know, you you might break the bank or it might be too ambitious. The thing that's interesting about Asylum is that Asylum wants to be ambitious. Uh, they want to see how far you can push things. And, you know, you look at their scripts and they're like $200 million movies and they're going, here, here's 14 days and, you know, no money, go try to make it. So when I got to do Sharknado, they, they were fine with me being overly ambitious as long as I could do it within the schedule, hmm. as long as I could, you know, come in on schedule on time. And also uh, in post, you know, I got a lot of leeway to go in and do some additional pickups with like GoPros and stuff. And, you know, we didn't get some stuff in the water. So I went out in a wetsuit with one of our actors and filmed a shark fin. And there's some of that shark fin stuff is me with the GoPro holding the fin in my hand, chasing the actor because we never got that stuff during principal because it was just, we just ran out of time. And so, as, again, as long as we weren't spend, overly spending money, they were fine. And so we just kept hacking away at this movie and um, adding stuff on top of stuff. And so it became this kind of crazy, insane movie. And Asylum, generally their humor, they're, they, they, they're very reluctant to put humor into these movies uh, just because they feel like you know, the foreign markets and stuff like that are, are hesitant. Mm-hmm. But they allowed me a little more freedom on this, which I was surprised as well. You know, particularly that last scene, the crouching tiger, hidden dragon one where he goes into the shark. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was something I was convinced they were going to make me cut for the movie. And there was a half a second where they're going, is that a little too much? And I'm like, no, it's fine. Of course, that was the image that uh, that ended up, you know, being shown in all the trailers. The other factor that I think with Sharknado was um, there was a summer where it was a lot of depressing movies and a lot of big studio movies that were coming out that mm. were t- tanking. And here was something that was for free that kind of is sort of family friendly if you really think about it. Aside from limbs getting ripped off and sharks biting people. Other than that. And, and so it was sort of a thing where people can just go, look, I don't want to spend 30 bucks at a theater. Let's just watch something at home. And so I think all of that combined and the fact that Twitter got involved, the this was the first kind of communal Twitter movie going experience. And the fans made us, which is what we never forgot during the sixth film. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they made us. And we always tried to stay true to the characters. And we always tried to, you know, make the make these movies about the family the the other interesting thing about Sharknado is that it's there's no really no military or scientists floating around. It's right. every it's an every man. It's Finn Shepard, this kind of washed up former surfer guy, and I think that was kind of interesting. So so I don't know. And 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 there's also if you really watch the movie, there's a few times where I'm literally talking to the audience. <laughs> uh, 
there, there's the Baz character uh, who uh, played by uh, Jason Simmons, and they're talking about blowing up the, uh, you know, taking bombs and putting them in the tornadoes, and literally uh, Baz steps in between them and goes, well, technically this can happen because blah 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 blah, and it's kind of like me stepping in and saying, yes, this is this is actually possible. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but we always played. Also, we also played it straight. The cam- everybody says these movies are campy, and I think definitely six veers into camp a little bit. Mm-hmm. But camp is everybody's in on the joke. The actors are in on the joke. Filmmakers are in on the joke. Right. You know, the only thing that's over the top is the Sharknado. All the characters are acting like they're in a normal movie, and that's what makes it interesting in that respect. So I think it, it's this weird hybrid movie that. You know, I still, you know, like I said, I don't know why or how it became what it did. I'm grateful. And um, I think the the thing uh, the thing about being a horror guy is that I also like comedy. And I like the fact that we were able to 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 give something to someone that that made them happy. There was a person at Comic-Con that came up to us after the movie aired two weeks later and we were doing a signing. and, And she said, thank you for making Sharknado. I've watched it three times it makes me happy no and so so it's kind of like okay that's kind of it's something kind of new I, I thought i was going to be scaring people the rest of my life and now i'm making people happy there's <laughs> there's something wrong here <laughs> or something very very right <laughs> yeah yeah evil so, dead 2 makes me happy for some reason so i get it exactly exactly and and there's that that kind of spirit of evil dead in in these movies in a in a, in a weird way and there's so the thing that too is that there's so many easter eggs that that I, I insert there for horror fans that are so like you know buried but like number five we we had a whole subplot about stonehenge and while they're shining the light in Stonehenge, there's silver shamrock uh, uh, insignias there, and a melted uh, silver shamrock mask is over uh, a skull. Hmm. So there, there's there's like a lot of these little things in there that I do for myself, and you know if anybody wants to to to, to catch. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like fun is the key ingredient to the movies and your approach to the movies. And I feel like that's that makes all the difference. That plus having the actors all play it straight, because I mean, when the actors take the movie seriously, then on a certain subconscious level, the viewer takes it just seriously enough to be able to go with it. And I think that that makes it so much more fun. Just that slight sense of I take it seriously to a degree, you know, otherwise you check out entirely and it's just camp for camp's sake. I think people are just getting tired of nowadays. Well, yeah. And I, I think, I think the other thing that I, I'm really proud of is that I, I think I have a record like uh, being starting from the beginning of a franchise and, and being involved in six consecutive films mm-hmm. as a director. And so that was kind of really interesting because I was able to be the tone filter. And also it was like a TV show in a way because you know, when we got to the sixth one, there were so many things we wanted to pay off in other movies or echo. And I always knew if if and when we were going to end it, that we would go right back to that bar from the first movie. Mm-hmm. And we were excited because we wanted to get John Hurt back, but then he'd passed the summer before we were going to shoot. Mm. And thankfully, his daughter allowed us to use the footage uh, and some other footage from that to put back into the bar. But there, the, but there's there's a consistency. There's you know we there there's not a lot of retconning. And even when we had to make adjustments because of certain circumstances, like there's no way we're going to have Dolph Lundgren show up for a whole movie, so we had to kind of do little workarounds to kind of make it work. But I was always cognizant of not 
being that uh, retcon guy or, you know, hey, that's not that's not accurate with the mythology. <laughs> uh, there was even there was even one thing, too, because we knew there would be time travel in the sixth one when we were doing the fifth one. And one of my rules during the, throughout the course of the six movies was we will never explain why Sharknadoes exist. Yet in the fifth movie, there's hieroglyphics saying Sharknadoes have been around since uh, the beginning of time. And what ultimately it was is because his son went into this vortex and in time NATO, he was the one leaving those messages for his father. So it was actually circling around. Oh. And so the hieroglyphics in the cave at the beginning of five, I had the visual effects guys sign at Gill. So if you pay attention, it's actually <laughs> signed there. So I actually got my way and was still able to mess with the mythology as well. <laughs> so many Easter eggs, my God. Well, considering how close you are to the story and to the mythology, after doing six movies, the last one of which concluded on a, on a pretty conclusive note, would you ever consider handing the franchise over to another director, hypothetically, if it ever were to come back and do new movies? You know, I'm I'm very protective of Sharknado. Um but, you know, look, if someone comes along and, and they want someone else to do it, sure. But I, I think that, look, if they came back to me and said, look, do you want to reboot this? Do you want to do something? I'd still be interested because I love that world. Yeah. You know, it's like a, it's like a TV show, you know, like, you know, that you've been like Buffy. I mean, Josh is still very protective of Buffy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we all kind of went through the, the, the producers, the writers, uh, the actors. We went through something communal with this thing that never happens where we had fans find us. It wasn't marketing. It wasn't, you know, putting it on billboards and commercials. It was just they found us. So, you know, you, you're, you're always wanting to protect, uh, protect that thing, you know, to make sure it, it doesn't veer. And, you know, as long as I can make sure that, uh, you know, I, I have a little bit of uh, input or, you know, if, if possible, if not, you know, it, maybe it's time for someone else to come up with something that's, that's different. Yeah. So, but I, I've look, I've got a lot of bucket list things that have happened with this movie. I got to write the Archie versus Sharknado comic. That's right. A comic book before. And that was really, really fun. You know, we have sort of a weird kind of theme song that, that kind of went viral and did well for us. So, you know, and I got to meet a lot of my idols. I got to work with David Knott, and I got to ha I got to work with Robert Hayes playing a pilot uh, <laughs> that may or may not be the same guy from Airplane. You know, it's just there. There's some just great things that came of it. Yeah, and the, and the fact that you know when when you know I go to conventions, there's a lot of kids that love these movies. I went to the Shark Convention and I was signing posters, and 80% of it were kids that knew these movies inside out, and. Um, I, I I was always cognizant of that for all the movies about, you know, kids are watching this thing. So you'll never see people going off into the woods to go have sex and get killed by sharks because kids, uh, it's sort of kind of got this ADD kind of a attention deficit disorder kind of way of making these movies where it's just, it's like, and then this happens and then this happens and then this <laughs> happens. And kids responded to that. And I, and I, you know, I was a kid watching horror films and they meant a lot to me. So when I see kids coming out and this had an effect on them and it, and it, it sparked their imagination, you know, that, that, that kind of feels like, you know, you're paying it forward a little bit because that, that's what we, why we all got into this because we were, we were, uh, antisocial or loners or yep. just were in our own heads and we found horror movies as sort of an escape. And to be able to get to, to, to be a part of this world and to contribute to it is it's, it's a gift. 
Yeah, and the movies do have a childlike sense of fun that just reminded me of how much fun horror movies were when I was a kid. Because you watch horror movies as a kid, and then you, you remain a horror fan as you get older, and the movies are still fun. But there isn't quite as much that same sense of wonder and fun that, that they do have as a child. So it sounds like you really got in touch with your inner child when you were making these movies, and that's partially why they're so much fun. I think the other thing, too, and I've said this to other people as well, is that um, – you know, we're doing a $200 million movie with a million bucks, right? you know, 18 days. And so a lot of Sharknado is, uh, there's an energy of desperation. Mm -hmm. you, you know, if some like studios, if they have a problem, they can come back and fix it. Um, you know, they could throw money at it. If we have a problem, we have 12 hours and 18 days to make these movies. If we're not shooting those entire 12 hours, we're not going to have a movie. And so when something goes wrong, you have to come up with something on the spot to make it work. And I think that's, it's that, that like I said, that energy of desperation. Um, and I think in Sharknado 2, we were supposed to have two garbage trucks um, and the Statue of Liberty head was rolling down and th this sort of idea of Pong with the two uh, garbage trucks was the idea in the script. But we get on the set that day and we have an hour, two hours with the garbage truck and they could only afford one garbage truck. And so everything that was scripted had to be thrown out. And on the spot, I literally had to fabricate how this thing sequence was going to work. And you're throwing out lines of dialogue to the actors. You're getting the pieces. And, and, and it, the scene works. It still works, as, uh, you know, but it's not exactly the thing that we wanted. But this thing is fine, too. Mm -hmm. But it was because we had no time. Um, we had another one of those instances with Tiffany Sheppis on the uh, the boat to uh, uh, Liberty Island in number two. And uh, we could not afford a boat to shoot on to take our actors, uh, you know, to drive right out in the boat in New York. It was just it was not possible. Um, and so I go, well, we pick the friend up on Liberty Island. We're about a week in the shooting. It's like, what are we going to do? We're just going to have this boat and we're going to hear people dying on it. And then we're going to come back and say, oh, she died. Um, when we did a scout, the production boat that took us out to Liberty Island, I timed it. And uh, it was like about 15 minutes. And uh, we knew we were going to be up at four in the morning. And so I go, well, maybe we'll have enough light. So what I did was, um, and thankfully the crew was cool and the actors were cool, I said, look, when we get on this boat, I'm going to pull out the camera and you guys are going to do the scene going to Liberty Island and we're going to see you guys going out there. So we did the, that scene going out to the island. And then coming back, we had 15 minutes, we had to do a huge action sequence where they're being chased by sharks and a shark attacks Tiffany. And, uh, and I told the actors, just trust me, we're going to just going to roll the camera and I'm going to do all these different setups. Just, just trust me. And we rolled camera and it's like, okay, okay, everybody run up here. Okay. All right, I'm going to get a close up. I'm never been afraid. Okay. Now I'm going to go over here and get the, the sharks <laughs> coming at the camera. Okay. All right. Now get on the ground, Tiffany. Now fall to the ground. Okay, great. All right. Now scream, uh, Carrie. Okay. Now, now let's get a close up of the, uh, the taser. Okay. Now everybody, everybody run out, run out, run out. We did that in 15 minutes. Whoa. And one continuous take about probably 15 to 20 setups. And it was the easiest thing to cut together. And the only thing that we picked up was the close-up shot of the shark rolling off of Tiffany's face with it all bloody. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what I'm saying, the energy of desperation. It's just like there's this thing of like, we just go, go, go. 
And, uh, and I think that's, and when you say stuff like with movies and that kind of thing that's missing, I think there's, there's this thing where things can be a little too planned. Um, you know, I know Sharknado doesn't have a lot of rough edges and it's not that we don't want those rough, it's not like we want those rough edges. It's by nature of, we're trying to be too ambitious for our budget and time and money and all that. But, um, but I think that that energy of desperation sometimes brings interesting things. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you're given those constraints, sometimes cool things can happen. Yeah. And I've, I've heard that from other filmmakers that when they have lower budgets, less time, more constraints, that forces them to be so much more creative. And the overall filmmaking process is a lot more fun and just overall more fulfilling because it is just kind of playing on your instincts as a director to solve problems and creatively come up with solutions on the spot, which I mean, in addition to just sounding like a lot of fun, although I'm sure it has its drawbacks in terms of stress and whatnot. It, it seems like that's just that that is what indie filmmaking is, is using that energy of desperation to solve problems to see opportunities in front of you and to and to just somehow make the film work. I did. Um, I did a, a handful of shorts. Um, to help out Dean Devlin on his TV show Leverage, uh, uh, that was in between. That was after Headless Horseman, and what I did was they, I, I got to work with uh, Drew Powell, who's since been on Gotham, and Aldous Hodge, who was just in uh, Invisible Man. And what we do is we'd come up with it was tied into the show, but we came up with a we'd sit down and we came up with like sort of a loose structure, and then we go out and shoot for half a day, largely improv, and then I would cut it together and make sense of it. And those turned out to be really funny exercises. Mm. But what I what I what I learned about that was this thing of working with your actors and finding things that aren't there, especially actors that have comedic sensibilities. They 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 could do so much. And um, I think I brought a lot of that with me onto the Sharknado movies because we did end up working with a lot of people who were comedians, and you know that that sort of working in the moment and finding that thing in a moment. Oh, hey, here's an idea. Let's throw it out real quick. Let's do it, do it, do it. Let's not overthink it. Let's just make it happen. To improv. Uh, improv, controlled improv maybe. But yeah, it definitely, I think it's definitely an improv, but within like the framework of, um, yeah, never mind. It's improv. Forget it. I'm not even going to try to go at it. Uh, but but uh, but like Judah Freelander, we had in two and six, and Judah makes me laugh so much. And his sense of humor—it's very dry, and it's very very much similar to my sensibility. And we were out freezing cold in Romania, and he's supposed to explain time travel to Finn. And it was just like, oh, that's the thing about time travel. And it's like, I, well, and that's not enough, Judah. It's like, yeah, okay, what do we do? I was like, what about, it's just something like, you know, you know, time travel is like here, there. It's like, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes you're stuck in 1955. Let's do a Back to the Future reference. And so he, he thinks about it for a second. And goes, okay, okay, roll. So we roll. And my, one of my favorite lines in the movie goes, that's the thing about time travel, Finn. Sometimes you're here. Sometimes you're there. Sometimes you're stuck in 1955 and you're, and at 55, your mom's trying to make out with you at the enchantment of the sea dance. <laughs> and he just rolled that off his tongue like it was scripted. And it's just, it's funny. So, I don't know. Yeah, I feel like there's a real magic there. And, uh, I mean, as far as improv, to me, it feels like it's, it's largely a lost art. Because when you look at movies like Ghostbusters, I think one of the reasons that movie still holds up so well to this day is those guys all had improv backgrounds. And they, their on-screen chemistry was so fluid and so good because they were able to embrace, you know, every single moment that came up while filming. But extrapolating that improv sensibility into filmmaking... 
is it is particularly in the in the context of indie filmmaking with low budgets, right? Like having that sense of yeah and and getting a crew on board with all of that. I mean, it's it's pretty extraordinary. How are you able to? I mean, when it comes to that energy of desperation, how are you able to either find a crew who can roll with that sensibility or? How are you able to get your crew on board with that sense of, okay, just trust me. I know what I'm doing. I don't want to explain everything, but just just go with me. Because it sounds like it's the sort of thing where you need to have everybody having that same mentality. Well, I, I think I think what it is, and, you, and, I, and I think you look at a lot of filmmakers that that utilize the same people over and over again, like Carpenter and Spielberg. You know, Carpenter used a lot of the same DPs. Um, Spielberg used, you know, DPs, editors, people that he's worked with over and over and over again. And I think part of it is getting that core um, that understands it. I think, particularly in the case of Sharknado, uh, I was the only one that that kind of knew that there that you know what I was trying to do. And the only other person that did understand it was was surprisingly John Hurd. He, you know, he go he goes at the end. The last day of shooting, he came up to me and he, he said, "You know, you know, I know I could be a little grumpy, but uh, you know, I I think there's some kind of method to your madness because I think there's something here." He kind of sensed there was something about Sharknado, which I'll always be indebted to him for for having that faith that that there was something here. And a, a lot of the stuff too, the actors, the, you know, a lot of the actors in the, that movie, uh, Ian and Tara. And Cassie had never done visual effects before, and I had done a little bit of it, but so I was having to con- basically explain what was going on. And at a certain point, I I started acting it out, and I would raise my voice and go, "And the sharks are coming, and they're flying over there. Okay, duck, do this." That, you know, so you're you have a lot of takes where I'm yelling over the camera, trying to kind of create that energy. And then I did that a couple times, and I go, "Okay, they got it." And then they're like looking at me the next time, like, "Aren't you going to do that again?" <laughs> I was like, okay. So I would keep doing that. So when we got to the second movie and it worked, you know, you had someone like uh, Ian who was like telling the other actors that were new on the show, just trust the process. You know, we've done this before and and there's a way for this to happen. Um, I've used the same AD. I used the same DP on three of the Sharknado movies. You know, the more people that you work with, the be- you know, the core the better they understand it, particularly your AD. Mm-hmm. You know, Esther Johnson, who I've worked with a lot as my first AD, you know, she understands my madness. Right. <laughs> she, she maybe not like it all the time, but she understands the madness, you know, <laughs> so she'll, 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 uh, she'll enable, enable me uh, to do, uh, to, to basically hang myself if I, if need be on these shows. Um, <laughs> but, but a lot of times though, too, it's, it's within the takes, it's within the moment. Um, I, I don't really like being an actor, even though I've kind of done a tiny bit of that. But what I like is getting really good actors that I can feed off of. Right. And so a lot of times when in the moment you're watching something and you're going, God, it would be great if this person just did this. And so right after we're done, I won't yell, cut, I'll go, just do it again and add this line or just do that. Because on low budget, if you yell cut, you're kind of done. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're, you have to move on. But if you're still rolling a little bit, you can maybe sneak something else in, <laughs> right? And and especially if your actors are you know are good at this, you know that's that's actually the key. And we were, we had a great group of actors on on these movies that just were able to roll with the punches. Because the one thing that would happen is if you couldn't roll with the punches, 
you'd be left on the cutting room floor. And there's a lot of supporting people or people that came in that we thought were going to do really great that they just couldn't roll with it. Mm. And so they would end up on the cutting room floor just because, it, you know, we don't have time for this. Right, and right. We got to the fifth and sixth movies. We had two and a half hour cuts of these movies. And then we Whoa. had to cut it down to 85 minutes. So that means that everything's super tight. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we shot a lot in a, in a short amount of time. Um, we got really good at it, but it, it, it is, it is stressful beyond belief. Yeah. Well, with that in mind, I mean, I can't seem to gravitate away from the idea of the energy of desperation, because again, I, I feel like it's such an important concept for indie filmmakers, particularly with their first few films to embrace. But when it comes to that, and I, when it, when it came to the, your first few movies and you're, you're working with low budgets and there is that energy of desperation how are you able to keep your the filmmaking experience so much fun because it sounds like such a blast whereas easily being under conditions where it's very low budget and everything is go 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 in some cases those some people could sit, could consider those to be the conditions for a hellish set or a difficult set but there's also on the on the inverse side of that there is something just unbelievably infectiously fun about that energy of finding a way to, to get things done. So how are you able to make the distinction on set and, and keep morale high and not only high, but keep people having so much fun on these sets that are, you know, possibly considered grueling or, or, or difficult or tight conditions. You you try, you try your best, uh, to, you, you try your best to understand that everybody's doing a job. And you could you can get frustrated at times or whatever, but the thing is, is that everybody's working together for the same goal, and um, I, th- I think that part of part of that is is that um, a lot of a lot of people that come out of film school, they you know so, some people are lucky and they get their their first big movie and they don't have to to kind of go up to the ranks and see exactly what everybody does, but I think there's something to be said for having actually been, been a crew member. Um, before I got my first film, you know, I'd done my short films, but I was a special effects supervisor. I was a PA. Um, I worked with, you know, props and costumes and, and, and makeup. And so I understood what the departments did and I understood what could and couldn't be done. So, you know, instead of coming out on set and going, I want this gigantic eyeball made in 15 minutes and you better have it now or I'm going to yell at you. Instead, it's like, I need something like a gigantic eyeball. What can you do for me? Do you, what do you have? And you work with people and, and then you get a little bit more out of the situation because, you know, you're understanding what everybody's time is. When, when, um, when I did Boo, my first movie, you know, having been, been, been on the makeup effects side of things, uh, we hired Kevin Wozner, who's went on to work with KNB on Walking Dead and he's an amazing artist. And, um, I told my AD, I go, look, if Kevin says it's going to take three hours to do this makeup, then we're giving him three hours. Yeah. So don't don't try to rush him. Build it into your schedule so he has the time to do it correctly. And that's what we did on that movie, and it worked out really well. Um, so you know, you, you we we did this zombie tidal wave movie in Thailand, and our effects guys had to go through tons of zombies. But I knew they could only get through so many in a day. So we had to kind of prioritize our schedule and work around that. So you mm-hmm. just, there, there are things that you can legitimately get upset about, but um, I'd say 90% of, of the stuff on a set is life's too short. Right. I'm not, say, I'm not saying that you don't get frustrated. I'm not saying you don't get angry about things, but it needs to be justified. 
Um, you know, because otherwise you're, you're on a 10th set and then no one wants to work on it. Right. Right. seems like a real yeah. fine balance. It, it, it is. And, and it's like, like I said, it's understanding what everybody does, I think is key. I mean, I, I'd edited a lot of my short films, so I, I kind of understand what I sort of need sometimes. Sometimes I'll overshoot, but I also know when I have it and when I don't, I think that helped me out a lot. And I've only edited two of my features, but I have, you know, played around in the edit on all of them. Mm -hmm. But, but I, you know, when I'm on set, I know, okay, look, master, you get your master. If, as long as you get one good version of it, that's fine. If things get screwed up then you move in medium close up, but coverage is king. So don't do four takes of medium and, and four takes of close up, do your wide, do your medium and get in for the close up. And then if you have time, maybe you get another shot. Right. Uh, uh, I think the biggest mistake uh, that's made, I've seen this happen on second unit sometimes when I've sent someone out to do second unit, um, they'll go and they'll shoot the same angle of the same thing. I'm like, why didn't you move it around? You know, it's easier, you know, if you do that, then I have more options than the same thing that you did 10 times. You know, we're on, we're on a unit. We can only do two takes per setup. So, you know, so those, those are the things that you kind of, um, you kind of start thinking about when you do things. If you, if you, if you, the knowledge is power. Right. And it's largely about understanding what everybody does. So you can probably communicate properly, communicate with them and have a, have a set that all just kind of works harmoniously together. You know, the hardest thing on Sharknado for me was learning about what visual effects can and cannot do. And because I come from practical, you'll see there's a lot of practical stuff in, in the first movie that is whenever possible because I didn't know what was cap what we were capable of. So as they progressed, I knew what they were really good at and what they could do really well. And I think that um, that helped out because now I can look at shots and I can basically see the visual effect. I can go, okay, we chop off this, we chop off that, we do this, you know, and you you kind of understand the framework. On that first movie, it was all learning curve. To, to the extent of, you know, wanting to do things practical, one of the things we did, I know we keep going back to Sharknado, hopefully this is interesting to people. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but um, we had the house set in the film. Now, again, we're a low-budget movie, and there's a house set that's supposed to get flooded. So we go, well, why don't we build this set in an empty swimming pool and then flood the pool? It's, it's insane what we were doing. So, <laughs> so our, our art department uh, started building this set. And let's talk about uh, sorting through things. Um, our poor production designer's team bailed on him and failed to finish the set. And we go out there and we're supposed to shoot and I'm looking at the set and it's just half done. It's not even painted. Then it's supposed to have the stairwell and it, it was just a mess. And he's going, I'm sorry, man. They just, they just left and I, I get it. So I told my AD, look, I'm going to go into the trailer and figure out what and how we could shoot with what's there. Just get them to fix it. And so he, in two hours, he painted it, made it work. And we shot in a freezing cold January, Los Angeles, uh, the set that was flooded with water. Um, and, and, it, and it looks like a house. <laughs> at, at there's certain angles, if you really look at it, we couldn't go up. We couldn't really shoot up. So we had to, we're sort of this weird medium kind of, because some of the set was like, ob like, again, I don't know what his team was doing, uh, but it was, just, it was just weird kind of configuration. So, but he made it work. And, um, and we actually had a practical shark in there and we had, we used some digital stuff and, and we got what we needed, but it's tactile and it worked. And I think, again, I think 
that's kind of the sometimes fun part about this stuff of, of again, working with the people you have. We could have just like gotten really upset with our, our production designer. We just said, okay, what can we do? How do we make this happen? Right, right. So with a background in practical effects and with all the practical effects that were in Zombie Tidal Wave, are you gravitating towards doing more practically with your movies nowadays? It depends on the movie. Um, you know, Z- Zombie was definitely uh, an attempt to do as much old school horror stuff as possible. I like mean, Fulci style. Yeah, I mean, there we, you know, I said, I, I told Ian, like, when people are getting bit, I'm going to have blood spraying out of their arteries. I mean, it's, and we can pull it back in the edit, but I'm shooting as much of it because I, I, I don't really like digital blood. We did use digital blood in Sharknado, um, but it works and it's necessary. We didn't have time and that, and that, 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 that works, but we did do some blood on Sharknado. It's just most of it ended up being toward the latter part of it digital, but on zombie, it's like, I don't want to do digital blood. And I think there's only maybe 10% of the movie has digital blood, which is, and, and I don't even think you can identify it because it's, it's buried within it. Uh, but it takes time. And that's the other thing too. It's like whenever you have to do blood gags, um, there is a process and you're only going to get so much. So you got to really pick and choose those moments. Uh, we had this head that, uh, in the film where this back of this guy's head gets bitten off and it's just blood's going everywhere. It's this huge chunk. And, uh, we submitted to the network, like the glorious version of this movie that, uh, you know, within the parameters of what we had. And with the thinking of like what they did in the eighties, they would come back, standards and practices would go, okay, pair this back. So we had more blood in there than we really wanted. And they go, Oh, everything's fine. (laughs) Oops. So we, so we actually paired it back. So, you know, so you didn't see that extra, you know, uh, um, hose spray that, that makes it look fake. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so things have changed a lot since then, but yeah, no, I look, I, I would much, I much prefer the, the practical side of things. But when you're dealing with sharks, it, it's just you, it, you're better off doing it uh, digitally. Right. So Unless you want to um, go all open water style and use real ones, which I don't know if anybody would recommend that. No, that we, you know, look, we, there were, there were times like we would always kind of tempt fate. We're going, Hey, we know somebody that can cage dive. Let's go actually create a scene. Everything would always come, uh, come about those movies of like, Hey, we have access to this. Why don't we do this? And so there was this moment where it's like, hey, Ian, would you get in a kit? Nope. Okay. All right. So it's not going to happen. <laughs> no real sharks. Sounds like a, yeah. a good ground rule to have. Well, I think since we we, we, we we did these movies, I think I don't think it's a very smart thing for us to be around real sharks. I don't think it would go well for any of us. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show was brought to you by Rue Morgue Magazine. Subscribe to Rue Morgue for award-winning insight into the world and culture of horror. From books, movies, and comics to music, collectibles, and classics. Featuring the latest film, book, comic book, music, game, toy releases, and more delivered to your door. Guillermo del Toro called it the best damn magazine in the genre. Subscribe to Rue Morgue, the horror magazine of the 21st century by visiting www.rue-morgue.com. 
Attention to all you New York listeners, the beloved comic book shop Forbidden Planet is in trouble in the wake of COVID-19. After months with zero revenue coming in and massive expenses going out, rent, utilities, and other bills have added up very quickly. The cost of doing business in New York City is astronomical, especially in a ground floor location off of Union Square. I grew up going to this place and could always find whatever my nerdy heart desired at Forbidden Planet, whether it was issues of Johnny the Homicidal Maniac or a rare Todd McFarlane movie maniacs action figure, Forbidden Planet had it and gave me the opportunity to hang out with members of my own tribe. I still go to this place and still get super excited every time I walk through their doors. Their staff is unbelievably nice and knowledgeable, and I always walk out with some awesome new discovery. Seriously, this is a magical place, and it breaks my heart that they're in trouble. The owners are dedicated to ensuring that their staff has a job waiting for them when the quarantine is lifted, and because of that, they need your help and have started a GoFundMe page. Just Google Forbidden Planet GoFundMe and you'll find it. Luckily, Forbidden Planet has been able to reopen their doors. So if you're in the New York City area or planning a visit, make sure you go there. Damn the man, save the planet. Please give if you can, and if you can't, please share the campaign. So last few questions. It seems like you have a real formula that you have perfected among throughout all of these movies with low budget, super high concept, very, very fun sensibility behind them. Do you have aspirations to be in a producer context, kind of a Roger Corman slash Jason Blum figure and kind of franchise this formula for filmmaking out? Uh, it, it just depends. I mean, I, I produced a film a couple years ago uh, called Awake in the Shadow Man with some really great people. And that was that was fun to do. But it just it just depends on the project. I, I you know, create creating an empire of, of, of low budget films. It's I like making the movies. I enjoy that process. And if it's something that, you know, I'm busy and I can't do uh, and it's something I really care about that I want to get involved in, I'd be happy to do it. But, um, you know, it just do you know helping other people out people out and doing that on occasion i don't have a problem with it but i'm I'm more interested in trying to uh create films that i really want to make and um work with the people that i really want to work with uh i have like a handful of scripts we've been trying to get off the ground for a very long time that i'd love to see have the light of day one of them called agony which we almost shot two years ago and then uh, we were going to shoot in april until (laughs) the uh uh, the quarantine app and it was supposed to shoot in Romania and it was a limited location thriller snowbound thriller um, but I, I think the thing that I've learned with Sharknado is that I, I like different things and what what it's allowed me to do is it's allowed me to kind of experiment as a filmmaker even in short form um, I was hired to do a bunch of uh, energy drink commercials that had uh, dancers in it and I love music so it was that was sort of a challenge to do something outside uh, my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And because of Sharknado, people sometimes send me comedy scripts, and I like comedy. So, um, so I mean, I'm, I'm a genre guy, and I'll always be a genre guy, but I, I like the fact that I get to branch out. Uh, did this Forgotten Evil movie a couple years ago, this thriller, um, that is kind of different than a lot of stuff I've done, but it also has a lot of other cool things in it that I, I'm surprised we got away with. So, um, you know, and I've also really, I really enjoy working with actors, especially ones that, you know, are willing to play with that sort of, uh, that improv thing that we talked about. Um, uh, an example on Forgotten Evil, um, part, one of the things I was trying to do is, you know, it's a relationship thing that was happening between the two characters. 
and um, I I wanted to do a karaoke scene because I wanted to have the song. This woman has amnesia; she starts remembering things. And we're low budget, so you can't really license great songs, or you can't license songs that everybody knows. Robbie Rist and I write a lot of the songs for these movies under our band name Quint. So we wrote a song, and we karaokeized it. And I played it for the actors once, and they go, "Well, we want to learn it and practice it." Like, no, that's not the idea of karaoke. <laughs> uh, we're going to play it live, and you're going to sing it live. And they were terrified, <laughs> but that one scene is one of the probably one of my favorite scenes in all of my movies. And that they're they're up there doing it, struggling through it, but there's this infectious quality to this couple trying to kind of do this song together. And that's the kind of stuff that's fun when you can get that and capture that on film because it's not a pre-recorded track. And, and those are the kind of things of, of trying to, to, to find spontaneity that isn't in, in a controlled situation. And then in that same film, there's a scene outside this hospital where that same guy is uh, talking to uh, uh, the girl and spoiler alert, you know, he's, the killer uh but uh she um she gets his phone number and i kyle i go kyle i want to write something on on this thing and i wrote something on it and then masiella came up to kyle going write something really sweet on on the note for me so i was like oh it's perfect because i'd already written something on there and so in the take he hands her the phone number and she looks at it and she starts breaking but she stays in character so it comes off as her being giddy and kind of like oh i'm in awe of this guy but what i wrote on there is i'm going to kill you (laughs) (laughs) and she and and but there's this again she stayed in character and 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 it's again it's that little bit of authenticity yeah i i think that's that's one of the things that more movies need to to, to strive for and you see it a lot in marvel there's that authenticity you have people committing to that and making it feel real and natural and it, regardless of being horror or not it's finding those honest moments those are the things that people remember people will always remember raiders of the lost ark harrison ford shooting the guy with the sword right which was not scripted it was in the moment because he had diarrhea yep <laughs> no one would have known it but they thought that is the funniest thing that is the greatest thing ever and so, um, so you know, as a, as a filmmaker, and I think for other filmmakers out there, it's 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 great to have blood, gore, and guts, and all that stuff. But it's finding those characters, finding those moments, because if you can care about your characters and you can find that that authentic stuff, then then people are going to be attracted to it. Which is again going back and talking about Sharknado is like people like those characters, yeah, and we never betrayed them. And whenever we got a script that came in and there was something that, no, Finn doesn't do that. No, Nova doesn't do that. We always stayed true to those characters, and that's why people followed them for the six years. Yeah. So. Yeah, there was something very magical about those moments of, I, mean, I keep going back to improv, for lack of a better term, but where people are able to remain in character but do something off that's not in the script. And I feel like the the, the way they're able to do it is by knowing their character so inside and out so that they can react in the moment as their character. And that just you know breathes life beyond the script. And yeah, like you said, it's it's caused some of the most memorable moments in cinema history. Well, like you said, Bill Murray. I mean, Ghostbusters, Meatballs, Stripes. Yep. I mean, it's Bill Murray doing all that stuff. And right. You know that a lot of it just comes, at, you know, it just it just pops out. And you know, he had a great collaborator with Ivan Reitman, um, and that's that's how you get those moments. And yeah. 
uh, and I said Marvel does that really well because they have people like Downey and Paul Rudd. Paul mm-hmm. Rudd is another one of those guys that I think just, you know, something comes up and he just goes with it. Yeah. So and, um, you know, for a while there, the, you know, the um, Seth Rogen, you know, those movies mm-hmm. did a lot of that as well. Oh, yeah, totally. Totally. Like Knocked Up, I think, to this day is still one of the funniest movies in, in a long time. Did you see the Bill Murray stories documentary on Netflix? No, no. It's oh, been, it's great. Yeah. It's really, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know what it's about, right? All those kind of, st- st- all these people have these obscure stories about Bill Murray showing up in a bar and showing up at like obs- house, obscure house parties in South Carolina. And there's all these people who have these just wonderful stories where Bill Murray just walks in and out of their lives and just totally brightens their day. But by doing the most obscure things, it's just it's wonderful. But it has these kind of deeper, farther reaching philosophies of Bill Murray. And it all goes back to improv, too. The whole movie just kind of brings a full circle. But it's a real fun watch. Yeah. I think it's called the Bill Murray stories. And it's an image of Bill Murray as Bigfoot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely recommend I, it. He's he's the bucket list. I mean, we always kept saying, you know, I think in the third movie we wanted him to be president. It was like, you know, oh, and then, you know how difficult it is to 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 find him, and also on our, our budget and low budget and how fast we move. If we even got him to show up, we'd probably be done filming, and the movie would have been out by the time he showed up. Yeah, but yeah, he's but, they, they struggle to get him on Ghostbusters three. He's elusive, but there's an eight hundred number that you have to call, and everybody has to call that number to get no matter it could be spielberg you know well, but, well i was actually thinking uh, we were thinking like um okay well i want to do you remember the saturday night live sketch that uh lauren michaels did way way back in the early days where he wanted the beatles so he was going to offer them like 500 bucks to split between them if they got together do you remember that at all no Okay, it was this the, it was this thing, you know, that they were like, you know, it was just them being silly, and I'm going, okay, you know, we should just do a video, and I we offer Bill Murray 500 bucks, however he wants to spend it, and do it in that and that thing. Maybe that would get his attention, but we just never had time. <laughs> there, you know, by the time by the time we started shooting, the, we we started shooting these things usually February. We edited it and delivered it in July of that year. They were insane movies to do. Yeah. So. But um, it's not too late. Know. He could be the president of Zombie Tidal Wave too. <laughs> yeah, there's a Zombie Tidal Wave too. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I I think that uh, I think it would be yeah. But he's already done the zombie thing, so it oh, that's right. He's done it twice actually. He shows up at the end of uh, Zombie Land too. Well, Anthony, this was a, this is a whole bunch of fun. I uh, really really appreciate your time. So thanks a lot. This was this was a blast. Thank you. You're welcome. Any parting advice for those aspiring filmmakers out there? Um, there's a there's a couple things I always tell people. Uh, one of them is just be aware that you're in a movie industry and everybody has an agenda. You just have to hope their agenda is your agenda. Mm-hmm. So if it's like, hey, I want a movie and everybody's on the movie wants to make a great movie, you're going to make a great movie. But you just have to be aware that you know some people are just in it to you know that's just a job you know and so you have to understand that and respect that you know yeah. some people really want to do something great um learn 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 every department even even just a little bit try to understand um, how how things are done um you know i i learned this visual effects uh program called shotgun which allows us to see um visual effects early and make notes and when I went on to Zombie Tidal Wave, I ended up helping out a lot because I had been through that process. And so I was able to like drop shots in 
and then make notes for the animators that were very precise because I knew exactly what was wrong with the shot. Like we need four extra frames here. You missed this, that, you know, so that was just because I, I learned that program. Hmm. Um, and then the other thing is, um, uh, I, I think at the end of the day is like, you know, do things that mean something to you that you get, that you're behind, whether you, it's something you, you really want to scare somebody or you want to make someone smile when you can latch onto those things and find those things that connect to you, you're going to make more, you're going to make some interesting projects because you, it's, it's very easy to make movies now. Anybody can pick up a camera and do it. So the stuff that resonates is the stuff that, that, that is means something to you and horror movies, as we know, are a great way to hide, uh, things and ideas that you couldn't necessarily do in a drama but in a horror film, you, right. could, you could disguise uh, metaphors and do things that can make it even deeper. And that's that's one of Cronenberg did that a lot. You know, there's a lot of amazing stuff. And then the final thing, um, and I've I guess, said this before, too, is when you go out on set, make a decision. Like if whether it's a right decision or a wrong decision, you could always say later I was wrong. But you just have to make decisions. You know, you, you don't have a lot of time. Time is money on these things. And if we're going to get into a situation now where uh, we're, we're going to have to start, you know, testing people for, for, for fevers and, and sanitizing and all that stuff. If you have 12 to 14 to 15 days to make a low budget movie and now you're going to add that on top of it, which is going to be necessary, you're going to lose an hour and a half of your day. And they're not going to give you five or six extra days to do this you're gonna have the same amount of time but you're gonna have the same amount of days just less time so making decisions are are are, are really important and and going okay this is what it is you, there are times when um you have something in your head and you go look i really want it this way and then you got to also realize you're not going to be able to get it that way and you're gonna have to kill your baby mm-hmm. and i've said that on sets before even this last movie i had i had this uh, this shot that i really wanted to do for this opening and it was the idea was we had a crane we're going from a window and we're panning down we're hearing an argument from a couple we go past the window we see them arguing grab this child and they come out the door and it and basically they come out the door then the the, the jib goes right into the woman and then that's our cut we had our house. Everything was great. We knew what we were going to do. And at the last minute, uh, the people that we were going to rent the house from couldn't do. So they had to find another house. And the house had all these power lines right there, which you can't have a jib on. And there was no real window where they could be at in the upstairs to get them down. And so I was sitting there just like, I was, just, I, was, I was irritated because I had exactly what I wanted. But I also knew what ultimately was going to happen, which was just we're going to have to kind of do it just on the bottom, on the front. Maybe we'll do it with the jib. And, and uh, I kept thinking about it. And then my VP came over to me and goes, look, I, I can do this with a steady and get you everything you need. And it's like, I know. Let's just do it. But, you know, for a moment there, I needed this stew because I was like, damn it. I, right. I wanted my Scorsese shot and I didn't get it. <laughs> but you know what? It turned out really good. It, you know, it, it was the low budget version of the big budget idea. Yeah. And, you know, you once you get over it, you can stew for five minutes because you can afford five minutes while lights are getting set up and you go, OK, this is what we're going to do instead of going, oh, the world's going to end. I'm not doing this. I'm going to be a baby. No, don't do that. Just 
be you got to learn to compromise. Yeah. Sometimes with the compromises, great things happen. Yeah. Well, wise words. On that note, thank you again, Anthony. This was awesome. No, thank you for taking the time and wanting to talk to me. I appreciate it. All right. Really enjoyed that conversation a lot. There's so much to think about. So uh, here, as always, are some key takeaways from this conversation with Anthony C. Ferrante. Number one, embrace the energy of desperation. The Sharknado movies are what Anthony refers to as $20 million movies made for $1 million. When you have a scope that big and a budget so low, every minute on set counts, as does every dollar spent. Collectively, this can cause filmmakers and crew members to scramble and really hustle on sets because time is money. These kind of circumstances and this kind of energy often translates to the movie itself, and it makes for a very interesting and fun kind of energy. Just look at Evil Dead. If they had more money, that movie wouldn't have been what it was. Having less time and less money also forces quick decision-making, and this decisiveness will only serve you as a director in the future, given the millions of decisions that have to be made on productions. When big-budget films are shot at a slow, lumbering, and comfortable pace and everything goes smoothly and according to plan, it often translates to a pretty boring movie. Of course, there are many exceptions. But you're an indie filmmaker. Your movies are supposed to feel rough around the edges because they were such a bitch to make. Don't fight this. Embrace it because it will serve your film and give it a noticeable energy. Number two, sometimes they just gotta trust you. Anthony described a situation on one of the Sharknado movies where he had to improvise a brand new complicated sequence on set because at the last minute, certain important props and centerpieces weren't available. Flying entirely by the seam of his pants, he had to improvise and elaborate an action sequence that he could see in his head and he had 20 minutes to do it. He went to his actors and simply said, trust me and follow exactly what I'm saying. And they worked it out in one shot. Sometimes you're not always going to have time to explain every last detail of every last decision to every single actor in the scene. In order to properly orchestrate what you see in your head, you need to build trust with your actors so they can follow you through it. This often comes with time and definitely has to be earned. Number three, empathize with your entire crew. When it comes to low-budget movies, there is such a fine line between a fun set and a hellish set. Low budgets, punishing schedules, and grueling elements can either wear everybody down or pump everybody up. Some indie movies are a blast, and people talk about how they were paid next to nothing and they loved every minute of it. When you hear Howard Berger and Greg Nicotero talk about working on Evil Dead, there's a clip where they mention that they were paid $400 a week, but every day felt like summer camp and they would have done it for free. Let's get one thing clear. I am not saying not to pay your cast and crew as well as you can. You always should. What I am saying is that it is part of your job as a director to build a set that people are going to want to come to, partially because you're going to want crew members to become longtime collaborators. Anthony talked about how the key to doing this is understanding that everybody is doing a job and that you have to give them the time, space, respect, and resources to do their jobs. This largely comes down to empathy and understanding what every job on set entails, which is why Anthony always urges aspiring directors to learn as much as they can can about these multiple jobs done on set. He actually has worn multiple hats across multiple productions himself, which has always helped him empathize with his crew and run better sets. 
Will you get frustrated? Will you have to continually inspire your crew? Will you have to remind them that you're running out of time and money? Will you have to crack the whip sometimes? Of course. But there's a conscious and respectful way to do all of these things. Mastering this idea can turn your ragtag indie crew into a community and ultimately an unstoppable force. So make a conscious effort to make your productions an enjoyable and overall positive experience because it can so easily be the opposite. Anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me if you shared it with your friends and family on social media. Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor and on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show.